Well, good morning, New Hope. Great to have you here. Uh, my name is Gary Post. If you don't know me, I'm the, uh, the associate pastor here. And uh, Mark and uh, uh, Mark is away this weekend. Uh, Mark and Derek and uh, a number of other guys have gone up to Alaska. They're on their way to Alaska right now to do some fishing. If you know Mark, he's a hunter and fisherman and and uh, so this is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of a getaway, father and son getaway, I think, for uh, hunting and fish, or fishing, at least, up in Alaska. Hey, before we get started this morning, let me, um, let me, ask, let me share with you something that, I, I, um, that Mark had asked me to, to share with you, just to clarify a little bit. Some people have been asking him, and a couple asked me as well, why, you know, why don't we see you anymore? Or, uh, one of them even asked Mark, has Gary been sidelined or, or what? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because I've been less visible, and, and uh, the, the, the truth is no. Uh, but as a matter of fact, uh, two and a half years ago, I, I told the elders that in September of 2017 that I wanted to take a step back from this um, associate pastor role. It's a, I wear a lot of hats. It's a busy job, and I love the job. It's, a, it's been a wonderful uh, blessing for, for myself and my family. But in, in a, as of October 1... Um, uh, I would like to take a step back from that and, uh, and just work in a part-time status. I'm going to focus on uh, counseling and care ministry. That's what I do a lot of now anyway. And so I, I'm going to uh, refocus, and uh, Gene and I would like to invest more time together and also uh, with our grandsons. We have four grandsons. We're still lobbying for a granddaughter. And, and we'd like to in, uh, take some time to invest in them as well. And so I'm going to begin that in October 1. You'll notice Kyle Denny's been a lot more uh, visible. Kyle has taken over much of my work on the operations side, that is the running of the church and also small groups. He's going to be taking over much of the financial stuff. Kyle's a a CPA, if you didn't know that. He's a very talented young man, so uh, he's doing a great job. And uh, we're transitioning a lot of those things over to him. Jean's going to be retiring as well in November from her role as a finance director. So uh, Kyle's going to have a lot on his on his plate, we're, we're dump, I mean, delegating to him. <laughs> but that's the reason you haven't seen as much of me. I'll still be around and, and I'll be counseling and uh, preaching once in a while and that kind of thing. So um, I wanted to get that out of the way, just so now you know everything I know about it. It's that season of life where we'd like to focus a little more um, um, on, on those things. Uh, let's pray before we get started. Dear Father, I thank you for these folks. They could have been many places this morning on this beautiful sunny day. They chose to come to church. They they chose to come here to be with you, Lord. And and so we ask that you would engage with us. Uh, We know that uh, you have things that that you desire to share with us from your word. Uh, We know that you're in the process of transforming us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And and I ask that uh, your Holy Spirit would be here in power this morning and and would use uh, your word and, and, would use, and, and, and would open our hearts to what you want us to see this morning and, and continue to transform us into the image of your Son. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, there is a, a current state of, of incivility, some say, in, in our, our world. On June 14, uh, James Hodgkinson, a 66-year-old unemployed home inspector, opened fire on a number of Republican congressmen in D.C. All of you know that. And uh, they were practicing for a baseball game. He wounded five, lost his own life in the process. 
And uh, he had a list of lawmakers apparently he was unhappy with. He expressed his displeasure with a gun. And that's not a new story, unfortunately, for us. It's happening all around us. And it, but it raised anew the whole conversation about incivility in, in our culture. Uh, incivility being rude or unsociable behavior or speech. Rude or unsociable behavior or speech. Psychology Today in October of 2016 uh, had an article entitled The Rise of Incivility and, and What to Do About It. They asked the question, has incivility become the new norm for America? In that article, they said that 75% of Americans think incivility has reached crisis levels and 93% link incivility to, to violence in our world. And of course, we see it in, in politics, we see it in uh, political talk shows, so-called reality TV shows, road rage incidents, social media postings, uh, mass shootings, higher rates of depression, and, um, and right now, uh, or as of last year anyway, we're at a 30-year high for suicides in, in this country as well. I, I noticed that the, the Psychology Today article was about 5,000 words. And um, it was 12 pages when I printed it out. And I went, I went through that and I looked for some mention of God, some mention of the evil that is inherent in the human heart that is much of, uh, behind much of the incivility and, and violence that we see. I didn't see any mention of that. They proposed a couple solutions toward the end. One was workplace policies against incivility. They proposed perhaps we need some new legislation to, uh, to prohibit people from being rude to each other, that, that kind of thing. They didn't seem to be substantive solutions. My question to you today is, uh, what responsibility do we have as followers of Jesus Christ in, in our world, in an increasingly uncivil world, what responsibility do we have? Let me uh, get to that point with a, a brief story. Some of you know that uh, my first career was with the state police, and I was a state trooper for 26 years. I retired in 2000. And one of my roles in the state police at a particular point in time was as a SWAT team leader. I took SWAT teams to various uh, incidents involving barricaded gunmen and hostage takings, those kinds of things. And, and once in the, in the mid-80s, I took a team up, up north to the UP. We flew up to the UP to deal with a, a barricaded gunman up there. The situation was that a, there, there was a, a man who had become um, enraged with his next-door neighbor and uh, shot and killed her with a rifle and then holed up in the house. It was a straightforward kind of a barricaded gunman situation. There were no hostages or anything. They called us up there, so I, when we got there, I sat down with a group of law enforcement people. A lot of them were much older than I was at the time. I must have looked like a, a college kid with uh, fatigues and, and glasses. I was a, a young sergeant at the time. And, um, and my head at the time was full of, of uh, participative management concepts. I was teaching at the time in the academy about um, that whole concept. Uh, if you remember in the early 80s, In Search of Excellence, some of you remember that at least, In Search of Excellence, whole idea of participative management, getting people to collaborate, decision making, that, that kind of thing. So I, I thought, well, I'll get these folks to collaborate with me. And, and so I, I said, uh, after they'd finished briefing me, told me what was going on, I said, um, well, what do, you, what do you folks think we ought to do? And they took a long look at each other and then they looked at me and they said, son, that's why we called you. 
And, and there are a lot of lessons I pulled from that incident over time. Um, and, and certainly we went on to resolve it. Uh, you know, they started generating all kinds of uh, schemes as to, as to how to get this guy out, and, and most of them were very dangerous. And so I said, listen, uh, let me just tell you that we have a plan for this. We've done this many times before, and we know exactly what we're doing. And, and if you'll allow us to proceed, we have about a 95% success rate of resolving these things without any further violence. And so we did that. And we uh, attempted to negotiate with this guy. He wouldn't talk to us. In fact, he was very uncivil uh, to us. And so uh, uh, that's probably why uh, God created tear gas. Because we, uh, we introduced tear gas into that house and, and, and suddenly and abruptly he changed his mind about staying in the house. And, and, and came out, we were able to arrest him without any further violence or, or loss of life. Uh, my point in that story is that I, I, I withheld that solution for a period of time, trying to accomplish something else. And, uh, and I think sometimes, and, and, uh, sometimes God positions us in situations involving chaos and despair. Uh, he sends us to be the solution in, in that circumstance. And, and that's, that's true of all of us. It, it's true of the church as well. Sometimes we're tempted to engage in the collective hand-wringing that happens in our world about what's going on in the world when, when in fact, we have the solution within us. We have the answers. God has provided that in his church. When everyone else around us is in despair, he calls us to be the solution. And in a world that is consumed by chaos and despair and violence, God has positioned and empowered us as the church of Jesus Christ to bring peace and hope and redemption. The church is, is indeed the hope of the world. And that's why God is calling us as his church to be the church in, in our, our dark world. The same uh, encouragement Paul offered to the, the Philippians in, in their world. He said in Philippians 2, do all things. He, he's telling them how to conduct themselves in a similar kind of a world. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. You see, we're, we're to be distinctive in the way that we conduct ourselves in this world because of who we are in Christ and how he is empowered to live out the, the character of Christ. How does that happen? Well, that's where we're going today. How Christ is our life and, uh, and the difference that it makes. Let's read in Colossians 3 to begin with. I'm just going to read the first four verses. Colossians 3, and I'm going to be reading out of the, the, the uh, ESV, so it's a little bit different than the pulpit Bibles, but it'll, it will be what's on the screen here, the English Standard Version here. I think it's a little clearer for this passage. That's why I'm going to use this. Um, starting at verse 1, Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in, in glory. So Paul says that, that we've been raised with Christ and, and our, our life is hidden with Christ in God. You may recall from, uh, I need to revisit some of Mark's teaching from Romans 6. You, you may recall that Paul says we've been raised with Christ in Romans 6, that, uh, our, that our, 
our, uh, uh, that we died with Christ, our experience is bound up with his, and that we have new life in, in Christ now as well. Uh, let me just read to you a few verses from Romans 6 to refresh your memory uh, about what Paul told us there. Uh, what shall we say then, Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, God's declared that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection become part of our experience as well. The implication of that is it frees us from the power of sin to live a holy life. Uh, beginning again in verse 5 of Romans 6. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a, in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And this is important. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, no longer be under its control. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And, and, and here's the, the part that is our new reality, I call it. Verse 11. So you also, given all that, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Uh, God says, this is who I've made you to be now. That was then, this is now. You're, you're a new creature. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Here's a pivotal reality in our Christian life, something that we have to understand and accept by faith as reality, or we won't be able to move on in terms of what God wants to do in our lives, and that is that we're dead to the power of sin. We're alive to the power of, of God in us. We're alive to the power of God to make us something that we weren't before. John MacArthur puts it this way, until a believer accepts the truth that Christ has broken the power of sin, they cannot live victoriously because in their innermost being, they do not think it is possible. We actually have the, the life of Christ within us and, and we're empowered to live a life that's pleasing to God. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the, the new has come. Paul tells us that Jesus Christ will actually live his life and his character out through us as human beings. He says in uh, Galatians 20, and this is really his testimony. He says, this is how it works for me, folks, and this is how it will work for you. Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. What that means in practical terms is that when we can't control our anger, we can ask God to say, look, uh, God, I, I can't do this on my own. 
Would you live out the patience and the grace of Christ through me in this situation? Because I can't do this on a human level. Uh, Lord, would you make me patient in a situation with someone else where I don't feel very patient at all? Would you overcome my human weakness and live out the character of Christ through me? When we can't be kind and loving in a situation, uh, Christ can be that person that desires to be that person through us that we can't be on a human level. So Paul says, given who, whom we have become as new creatures in Christ, he urges us to shift our focus. He says, set your minds on things above. Our perspective shouldn't be on the earthly things that distract us, but toward those things that matter to God and, and help us to take on Christ's character. Well, he shifts then to putting our old man to death, putting our, our sinful life to death. Let's read the next few verses in Colossians. He says in the, uh, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Execute it. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. These things that were part of these Christians' past. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked. He said, that's who you were when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, here, that is in the church, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. They had their own version of... Uh, of conflict between races and ethnic groups. The, the uh, Scythians were, for example, uh, one of the most reviled and, uh, and feared uh, groups. They were uh, thought to be uncivilized barbarians, and, uh, and so they were looked down on by everyone. And the Greeks looked down on the Jews, and the freedmen looked down on the slaves, and so on. Paul says, none of that. Uh, you're all on equal footing in, in Christ. And this was, uh, the whole idea of putting off sin and changing our behavior was foreign in that Greco-Roman culture. It, it was counter-cultural. They did not see the need to change their behavior in response to their beliefs. This is what Warren Wiersbe says about that. We must keep in mind that the pagan religions of Paul's day said little or nothing about personal morality. A worshiper could bow before an idol, put his offering on the altar, and go back to live the same old life of sin. What a person believed had no direct relationship with how he behaved, and no one would condemn a person for his behavior. Well, what does it mean to put to death our, our sinful behavior? Uh, Jerry Bridges in The Pursuit of Holiness puts it this way. He says, to put to death the misdeeds of the body then is to destroy the strength and vitality of sin as it tries to reign in our mortal bodies. How do we go about that? Well, first of all, it, it's a work for the Holy Spirit. We rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish in us. It's not a do-it-yourself project. It's not that we don't have a role, uh, but we can't accomplish it in our own effort. And it's not one that occurs overnight. It is a work of a lifetime. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, in other words, if you try to accomplish it in your own effort, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, it, you'll live. So, so the, the power of the Holy Spirit's essential. The second thing is we need to immerse ourselves in, in the Word of God. The Word of God is the Holy Spirit's power.
power tool, if you will, to, to transform us. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 6, 17, that the word of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. Uh, the the, the uh, word of God is the Holy Spirit's scalpel uh, to, to cut away those parts of our, our old person that uh, cling to us. Jerry Bridges once again puts it this way, obedience is the pathway to holiness, but it is only as we have his commands that we can obey them, that God's word must be so strongly fixed in our minds that it becomes the dominant influence in our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. And thirdly, uh, we need to, to break past sinful habits by choosing, by deciding to resist temptation to sin. Uh, again, Jerry Bridges, so we see that God has made provision for our holiness. Through Christ, he has delivered us from sin's reign so that we can resist sin. But the responsibility for resisting is, is ours. God does not do that for us. To confuse the potential for resisting, which God provided, with the responsibility for resisting, which is ours, is to court disaster in our pursuit of holiness. You see, we have a role. God expects us at that point of decision uh, to make a decision of obedience versus a decision that, that uh, suits our own interests. And, and then fourthly, engage in regular confession of sin as the Holy Spirit reveals things to us that are displeasing in, in our life. 1 John 1, 9 tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we usually stop there. Uh, but th the second part is important. It says he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The whole process of a progressive sanctification or, or becoming more like Christ over time is the work that the Holy Spirit does as we agree with God on our sin. And then as, as we uh, confess it to him and agree with him on it, uh, he cleanses us from whatever it is. Paul says to put off the old self, to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. He says, seeing that you have put off and have put on. The Greek words underlying that uh, imply that it's, it's already been accomplished. When you come to Christ, you have put off uh, your former life and you, you have put on the new self. That's a one-time transaction. It's a past tense. It's a done deal. But being renewed in knowledge is continuous action. Being, being renewed in knowledge uh, in the image of its creator, that is continuous action. That, that's happening all the time. How do we, how do we become renewed in, in knowledge? Well, again, it's the word of God. The, word of, uh, the uh, Holy Spirit uses the word of God to shape our character into the image of Jesus Christ over time. That's what spiritual transformation is all about. I like the way that J.B. Phillips put Romans 12, 2, when he describes that process. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves toward the goal of true maturity. Well, that's putting sin behind us. That's uh, putting off or putting to death uh, the old part of our uh, sinful habits and experience. What about putting on the character of Christ in this world? Let's read the next few verses in Colossians 3. Beginning at verse 12, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, uh, compassionate hearts. This is what our lives are supposed to look like as, as uh, the Holy Spirit transforms us. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what should our behavior look like if we're modeling the character of of Christ? What Paul is saying is, if you truly belong to Jesus Christ, then, then dress the part. Put on the character of, of Christ. What should that look like? Well, uh, first of all, and sometimes I share this passage with couples when I'm counseling with them, um, and, and especially if their relationship is full of conflict and stormy, I say, listen, this is how God wants us to behave toward each other. Does your, does your behavior toward each other, the way you speak to each other, the way you treat each other, does it match up with, with what we're seeing here? Compassionate hearts uh, have to do with pity and, and mercy and sympathy and empathy. That is, uh, feeling another person's pain and, and, and emotion. A deep heartfelt concern. Kindness is really the, the face of Christ's love lived out in a practical way. It's related to compassion, but it, it relates to that grace that exudes from us uh, that is characterized by our genuine concern for, for other people. Humility was uh, a, a virtue that was not uh, thought highly of by the Greeks. In fact, they thought it was a, a weakness, and, and all the connotations of the, the original Greek here are negative about humility. Uh, humility uh, was seen as, as uh, weakness, uh, but what it has to do with is, is uh, putting another's interests ahead of our own, and, and it was elevated by Christ's example at, as a virtue, sacrificially putting our needs ahead of his own. The meekness, otherwise translated gentleness, it's not weakness or timidity, but rather the willingness to suffer an injury rather than inflicting it on another person. Patience means we, we don't quickly become angry with another person, but we extend them grace even when we're provoked. For, uh, 2 Peter 3.9 says, God was patient with you, not wanting any to perish. And so he set that example for us. And, and bearing with one another, that is being tolerant of each other's quirks and failings. Folks, we all, we all bring our own warts and wrinkles and idiosyncrasies into our relationships in the church and outside the church, right? And some of us can be, can be more or less difficult uh, to be around de depending on the day sometimes. And, and we have to give each, other's give each other grace. Uh, we have to bear with each other in, in spite of the, the uh, little quirks uh, that we sometimes bring with us. And then forgiving is, is so important. Uh, leading with grace and forgiveness when we've been wronged. And forgiving even before we've been asked. Or even if we're never asked. Offering forgiveness. Uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 tells us. While we're enemies of God, uh, God forgave us. Unselfishness and grace and forgiveness are the common thread in every healthy relationship, in every healthy marriage, certainly. Uh, those marriages that are strong and healthy and satisfying over the long haul are, are full of unselfishness and grace and forgiveness. But chronic unforgiveness 
is the basis for so much depression and anger and conflict in relationships. Finally, Paul says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You notice that every one of these virtues are manifestations of love. They're also evidence of Christ's character in us. John MacArthur says this about the importance of demonstrating Christ's love to the world. He says, love is the most important moral quality in the believer's life. It's the very glue that produces unity in the church. Believers will never enjoy mutual fellowship through compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, or patience. They will not bear with each other or forgive each other unless they love one another. So that's why love's important in the church. How about outside of the church? Why does demonstrating the love of Christ matter in this world? Well, love's the identifying mark of the Christian. It's the mark of the Christian. Jesus told us that in John 13. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus said that people will be able to determine whether we are Christians, at least that's their perception. They'll conclude whether we are Christians or not by our love for each other, whether we show the mark. Francis Schaeffer, one of the great thinkers and uh, pastors and theologians of our time, said that there are two judgments that the world's entitled to make about us based on the mark. Uh, first of all, the judgment as to whether we're true Christians. He says, this passage reveals the mark that Jesus gives to label a Christian, not just in one era or locality, but at all times and all places until Jesus returns. The point is that it's possible to be a Christian without showing the mark. But if we expect non-Christians to know that we're Christians, we must show the mark. And, and the second judgment has to do with whether or not God sent his son to save them. He says, Jesus said in John 17, I do not ask for these only. This is the high priestly prayer. He was praying not just for his disciples, but he was praying for us. Listen carefully. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me, friends. Jesus was praying for us in this prayer, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. In other words, the credibility of the gospel before the world hangs on our ability to demonstrate love and unity. Once again, Schaefer, here Jesus is stating something else which is much more cutting, much more profound. We can't expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of Christians. Is it just Christians that we have to show love? I mean, how, how low is the bar for us? Is it just Christians that we have to show love to? Because, uh, you know, you folks are, are pretty lovable, at least on Sunday morning. I'm, I mean, you, you show up here, you, you give me the illusion at least that you're paying attention, you treat me with respect, everybody's nice to me, we enjoy cookies together. It, it's, really, it's really a place where you can love people, uh, isn't it? So if it's just that, we can probably pull that off. But Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. When, when asked by one of the religious leaders of the day, 
What's the greatest commandment? He said this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. So Jesus is expanding. It says we have to love our neighbors. Well, if, if you have great neighbors, you're probably in pretty good shape. But if you've got a neighbor that's cantankerous, it's going to be a lot harder. And so somebody else had to ask him, of course, another religious leader had to ask him. They were baiting him. They said, well, who's our, who's our neighbor anyway? And he told the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. It makes it clear that anyone in need is our neighbor. Anyone in need is our neighbor. In fact, everybody's our neighbor. But do we have to... Do we have to, maybe there's some wiggle room here yet, do we have to love people who treat us badly? Well, Jesus holds us to a high standard. He says, you heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy in Matthew 5. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not the tax collectors, that is, the, those who were reviled and looked down on at the time, do not even the tax collectors do the same. The Apostle Paul picks up that theme in, in uh, Ephesians 6.10. He says, so then as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone, and especially to those of the household of faith. The bottom line, folks, is that unless we demonstrate Christ's love and kindness to everyone in, in our world, the, the world has the right to conclude that we're phonies and that the gospel is a hoax. Schaefer, one last time. If the world does not observe this among true Christians, the world has a right to make the two awful judgments which these verses indicate that we're not Christians and that Christ was not sent by the Father. And so just as we sang about, uh, we need to know about the, the kindness as the outward face of Christ's love. Why is kindness so powerful? as an expression of Christ's love. Well, kindness is the outward, visible expression of Christ's love for, for those around us. What are some examples of, of kindness that you see in, in your world or, or that you've practiced? This is the audience participation portion of this message. What, what are some examples of kindness? Anybody? Samaritan's Purse. Feeding the Samaritan's Purse, yeah, an organization that feeds the needy and, and takes care of those in, in crisis. Demonstrating kindness, the, the uh, volunteers at Barakel serving others. Yeah, another expression of kindness, exactly. What, what are some other common expressions of kindness that, that you employ? Praying for each other. Thank you, Carol. Yeah, and we have a prayer ministry here. We have a Stephen ministry here where, where people make it their ministry to come alongside others in kindness and, and encourage them. Uh, same thing in, in prayer. Uh, we lift up other people, release God's power into their situation in prayer. Uh, how about just a, a kind word to somebody who's discouraged? Or another expression of discouragement, a, a phone call. Uh, coming alongside somebody who's, who's grieving. I, I know that you do that because I see you do it all the time. Uh, listening with empathy, expressing love, helping somebody with, with uh, food or finances or visits in the hospital. 
All those things are the outward, visible expression of Christ's love. They're all expressions of kindness. Kindness, another reason it's so powerful is it's attractive. It draws people to us. Everybody wants to be around kindness. Uh, the Gospels tell us that Jesus was a magnet for people and that uh, he saw the crowds and had compassion on them. Uh, the reason there were crowds is because he had compassion. He loved people, especially the outcasts. People knew that and they flocked to him. Uh, you know, when I uh, interview couples in premarital counseling, or when I uh, interact with them in premarital counseling, I always ask them, the first time we meet together, I ask them, um, how did you meet? Because I'm interested in how their friendship developed. And, and then also, I ask them, uh, what attracted you to your partner? What first attracted you to them? Recently, a, a young woman in one of those situations told me, she said, you know, we were co-workers in the same workplace, and, and she said, I... I saw, I saw my partner extend kindness to someone in, in our workplace, another colleague in our workplace who was socially awkward. He wasn't well-liked by the others. Other people shunned him. <clears throat> but, but this young man extended friendship to him and was kind to him. And she said, when I saw that, she said, that, that touched my heart. I, I wanted to know him better. And, uh, and the relationship progressed, and they're going to be married next June. But what attracted to her, what, what attracted her to him was his kindness expressed to, to someone else. Kindness is attractive. Kindness leads people to faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 2.4 tells us, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You, you notice that the, the kindness of God leading to repentance, that's a principle. That, that's the way God has set it up to work. God's kindness often opens people's heart to repentance. But in practice, that kindness is extended through who? I'm sorry, through the body. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's extended through individual Christians. And, and people come to faith as, as a result of that. You know, I've led a number of people to Christ over the years, but I have not once browbeat or argued somebody into the kingdom. I don't think it happens that way. I think, you know, there have been various times when I've cultivated friendships, extended friendship to somebody, extended an act of compassion, or prayed with somebody who was in crisis or whatever, many things like that, but it's always, almost always been an expression of, of kindness that has opened a person up over time to the gospel, and they've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Kindness opens people up to the gospel. It gives us credibility and standing and influence to speak into their lives. That's why kindness is of eternal importance in this world and it makes us instruments that God can use to advance his kingdom. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Matthew 5, 16, you see kindness points people back to God. Kindness also transforms relationships and it changes us. You know, our culture encourages us to, to let our emotions, our feelings, drive our actions. Let it out. If, if, you're, if you're angry, then our culture says being honest is telling people exactly what's on your mind. I, I say that's being mean. And, and, and words are weapons. And sometimes when we say things that are hurtful, we do damage to a relationship. We can't unsay those things. We can't unhear those things. So it's, it, it's important not to let our feelings drive our our actions. God says the opposite. He says, act in obedience and the, and the feelings will follow. He says in Ephesians 5, 20, 
5, for example, husbands, love your wives. And what the Greek means there is husband, act in loving ways. He's not commanding us to feel a certain emotion. He's commanding us to act in loving ways toward our wives, knowing that the emotion of love will follow. You see, the same thing in, in, uh, husbands, or in wives respecting their husbands. He, he knows that what men need is to, is to be our wives' uh, protector, provider, dragon slayer, hero, all of that. And, and when she looks up to us in that way, it, we just warm to that. It, it, uh, that. That's what we want. We feel like a million bucks when that happens. So that the point is, act in obedience and, and those emotions will follow. Kindness transforms relationships in, in those ways. Well, how about the practical application of kindness? Um, you know, I use a book in uh, counseling called Surprising Secrets of Highly Happy Marriages by Shanti Feldhahn. It's a, uh, she's a Christian, uh, Harvard-trained social researcher. She speaks into relationships, and her, her work is research-based. I use that book uh, almost every day with couples. It's just very practical stuff on what makes marriages work. Uh, but she's just written another book. It's called The Kindness Challenge. Uh, there are a few copies in back if you're interested. When we're done here, uh, we'll have some for sale in back. Uh, but she says that based on her research, kindness transforms relationships. And, and she, she says that uh, three simple acts of kindness practiced for 30 days improved 89% of the relationships in her research. Relationships with spouses, children, or stepchildren, bosses, co-workers, any relationship you want to improve. So this is how it works. You select a particular person uh, that, that you want to use the kindness challenge with. Can be your spouse, doesn't have to be. Can be a co-worker or, or a friend or, or somebody else. Anywhere you want to improve the relationship. There are three acts of kindness here. First of all, say, ne say nothing negative to or about your person uh, to someone else for 30 days. Yeah, 30 days is a long time, isn't it? Uh, say nothing negative about your person, either to them, about them, either to them or about them, to someone else for 30 days. The second element is every day find one positive thing that you can sincerely praise or affirm about your person and tell them, and then tell someone else. She says that praise is the catalyst of kindness. I like that. Praise is the catalyst of kindness. The third, the third element is every day do a small act of kindness or generosity for your person. That's the kindness challenge. Now, there's an alternative element for element number one. Uh, what they found was that when you said to, to guys in particular, uh, don't say anything negative about your person, uh, guys would say, well, fine, I just won't say anything then. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't really help. That doesn't take us in the right direction. Uh, that's our tendency as guys is to withdraw, especially in uh, conflict, uh, but that doesn't help. So she proposes this alternative element. Here it is. Uh, don't be distracted, don't withdraw, give your wife your full attention in conversation for at least 15 minutes a day. And when you're upset with each other, stay in the game five minutes past the time you want to escape. You see, conversation, that, that kind of uh, intimate communication, eyeball to eyeball communication, is what builds emotional intimacy in a relationship. That's why it's so important. It's the glue that holds us together. Here are some results of implementing the, uh, the kindness challenge for 30 days. I mentioned uh, that it improved 89% of all, all relationships, all types of relationships. Secondly, among those with room for improvement in their relationship with a spouse, those who did the challenge for at least two weeks, 67% reported that enjoyment in their relationship improved with 72% of that group declaring they were now happy in, in, their, in their marriages. 
And then among those, also among those with room for improvement, as they described it, fully two-thirds felt more loved and appreciated after doing the full challenge for, for 30 days. And then finally, 74% said their partners changed for the better. Where they moved from little or no praise to, to daily praise, the number rose to 92%. And I should tell you that that group, uh, in that group, uh, for almost all those couples, only one of those partners was, was practicing the kindness challenge. It, it just goes to show you that, that relationships can be transformed beginning with one partner. So what I'm gonna, what I'm gonna propose that uh, you do, what I'm gonna challenge you to do is to take the, the kindness challenge, practice the kindness challenge for 30 days as a, as a practical application of what we're talking about in Colossians 3. See how God will use it to, to show the mark through your life to the, the, the world that's desperate to see the love of Christ. I, I proposed it to my wife, Jean, and, and she was all too ready to, to do the kindness challenge, but I said, Jean, there's, there's just one problem. You know, I said, I, I don't know if I can get any kinder than what I already am. <laughs> she gave me a long look, like our wives do, and she says, oh, I think there's room for improvement. So we're gonna do the kindness challenge together, and we ask you to join us in that, and you can ask me, you, well, ask her how it's going. And, uh, and we'll be working on it over the month of August, and I, I, I hope you will too. Let me uh, close with a, a short story about kindness in the second century. The Romans had a notable lack of compassion for their own sick and disabled. History tells of a, a letter from a Roman commander in, in second century Antioch. He wrote his, a letter back to his superior about a plague that was, demo, uh, that was devastating second century Antioch. He reported that the plague had killed so many thousands in the city that he'd pulled his soldiers out for their own safety. And everyone else was leaving as well. The doctors and the city officials were already gone. Family members were abandoning their loved ones in an attempt to save their own lives. Uh, there was a curious thing that was happening that he reported, however, and that was that members of a religious sect had stayed behind to care for the sick and the dying at, at great personal risk to themselves. When he asked why they chose to stay, they replied that it was out of their great love for their God. He asked their God's name. It was Christos, the Christ. And Antioch was where we were first called Christians, little Christ. Friends, those early Christians demonstrated the love of Christ. They, they showed the mark at great cost to themselves. The call on our lives is, is to do the same. Will you show the mark as you go into the world tomorrow morning? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for the great example of our Lord Jesus Christ as uh, as as he made himself a servant, as a sacrifice to us. And, and Lord, we pray that uh, you'd empower us with your Holy Spirit uh, this week as we go out into the world, that you'd live out the love and the character of Christ, that you'd allow us to show the mark in such a way that other people are drawn to Jesus Christ as their Savior as well. And we ask all these things in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for your time today. Folks, have a great week.